Welcome to Questions We're Afraid to Ask. Well, welcome back, everyone. We have another guest with us, and our question today is, how do you go from a university professor to a professional woodworking YouTuber? And our, our guest is uh, Rex Kruger, who has the very popular um, woodworking channel on YouTube, uh, Rex Kruger, and he is also a published author. See, I can see the, the book here, um, which we will put a link to where you can get that in the description. So with all that stuff out of the way, welcome. Thank you very much uh, for joining for having us. Me. Uh, we, we really appreciate it. Um, we started this up, what, about in February? We started this up in February uh, because we were having long conversations. We were like, people might listen to some of this stuff. And now we're like, we can invite people on. Um, so well, it's really I listened cool. to a couple of your episodes, and it's a great show. So I'm glad you started well, thank it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Which do you, do you remember which ones you listened to? Definitely James Wright. And then I started another one, and then my daughter needed something. So <laughs> and our, our topics are all over the place. It's kind of like whatever our yeah. interest is. And both of us are kind of history nuts. So we're, we really dive into that, especially with the like hominids and hominin and, and that kind of stuff with all the discoveries oh, we've had. Yeah. And I did the DNA thing a while back that tests for the Neanderthal stuff. And it found that I had oh, a yeah. fairly high percentage of that, which is not surprising um, for a whole variety of other reasons that we talk about in the episode. But um, yeah, this is really exciting. This is for me. It's like interviewing a celebrity because I oh, found your YouTube channel a while back, and I've been watching it, and it's a little surreal, um, kind of like it was with uh, um, uh, James Wright with the Wood by Wright channel. So, the longer you know me, the less exciting it gets. <laughs> Just trust so. me, the thrill fades very quickly. <laughs> um. So uh, I, I do want to ask, just like, how did you go? Because I know you were a university professor. I've seen that in your videos. How did you go from university professor to, you know, full-time YouTuber? What was that like? Yeah, sure. It's, it's a pretty good story. Uh, the first thing I should say is that technically I was a lecturer. Okay. So uh, to understand what a lecturer is, just take a professor and take away money and respect. So that's basically what okay. the job is. So the, the basic deal with uh, lectureships, which only some universities have, is that somebody realized there's been a massive overproduction in certain PhDs in America. And I have a PhD in English, and there's a massive overproduction of PhDs, way, way more than we need. Mm -hmm. So somebody figured out, hey, we don't have to give these suckers professor jobs anymore. We can downgrade those jobs to something without tenure and mm -hmm. without faculty. And, it, and with way less money, and they'll still climb over each other to get these jobs, which is 100% happened. I would have climbed over my mom to get a lectureship <laughs> because the alternative was unemployment. So mm -hmm. that was definitely a part of it. I trained for seven years to be a professor. And the only job that I got any traction with at all was a lectureship. So... You know, uh, at 34, 35 years old, I was at a, at, a, at a dead end job that didn't have a significant chance of getting better. I'm from Connecticut originally, and uh, the job that I got was in Central California. So, mm. a town called Mer where are you guys located? Uh, we're both we're just Texas. outside of Austin. Yeah. Austin, oh, Texas. Right on. Yeah. yeah. I hear great things about Austin. Um, so, I was in Merced, California. And if you haven't heard of it, there's a reason for that. There's very little going on there except for uh, agriculture, poverty, and methamphetamines. 
Um, and those three things don't make a great combination. Yeah, I no. was at a wonderful university there, University of California, Merced. So it's the newest branch of the university system. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of the frontier spirit. They plunked this very modern campus in the middle of the prairie. And it was it, this, this monument to knowledge made out of glass and steel in the middle of the sort of windswept Central California desert. And it was a, it was a cool place to be. The surrounding town was rough. And it's mm -hmm. uh, coming from Connecticut by way of Florida to Central California. It was like living on Mars. It was mm -hmm. really weird. Um, my wife and I lived there for eight years, and we just never adapted to it. And <clears throat> because there are so few academic jobs, I knew that if I quit that job before I had another one, I was never going to get another one. Mm -hmm. because there's no reason to hire somebody who, I mean, why, why is this person unemployed? Why, why mm -hmm. should we even look at somebody who's unemployed? There's so many other applicants. Why bother? Oh yeah. And I said, my wife, you know, like, listen, we, you know, we can, we can quit our jobs and we can leave and move someplace else, but I'm not going to get another English teaching job. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to do something else. And I said to her, I'm probably going to start a woodworking business. And her reaction <laughs> was whatever, get me out of here. <laughs> yeah. She, yeah. Completely, she was very supportive, but she also didn't care as long mm -hmm. as we got out of Central California. Yeah. Um, so we we moved to uh, Ohio because I had a, a good buddy who lived here, and I came to visit. And the Cleveland area is amazing; it's super affordable, and it really reminded me of Connecticut, reminded me of home. And um, so we moved here, and I kind of floundered around for a little while, not really knowing what I was going to do. And one day, one of my neighbors had a dogwood tree fall in his yard. I don't know if you guys have dogwood where really. you are. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it's this small tree with this incredibly mm -hmm. dense white wood. It's almost like ivory. Okay. So it's really wonderful for making little things out of. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm a turner, you know, in addition to woodworking. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, that's wonderful. But, but it was in our, you know, a, a neighbor's yard. And my wife looked at me with her most serious expression and said, don't go steal that wood out of that guy's yard. Do you hear me? <laughs> yes, I absolutely do. Now I'm going to go get some milk from the store. <laughs> I will see you after I get the milk. And my wife was just like, just don't get arrested. And she <laughs> went in the house, washed her hands of me as you would expect. And while I'm in this fellow's yard, just cutting up his tree with a handsaw brazenly, a huge black SUV pulls up in front uh, and the windows roll down. And I thought, hmm, well, I talked myself out of worse stuff than this. And um, the fellow uh, in the SUV yells out to me, hey, man, why are you working so hard? And I said, what? And he said, why are you working so hard cutting up that tree? Do you need firewood? And I said, no, I'm a, I'm a woodworker and this is a dogwood and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said, yeah, I know what it is. I own a wood shop. And I was like, oh, that's wonderful. Where's your shop? And he said, oh, it's, you know, a couple miles from here. Do you want a job? <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Yeah. And I said, oh, sir, I'm sorry. You misunderstand. I'm a hobby woodworker. I, I you know, I do things in my basement. This is a hobby mm -hmm. for me. And he said, yeah, I understand. Do you want a job? <laughs> and I said. Yes, yeah. I guess I do. And it turns out he actually did own a shop that well, he wasn't wrong. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I started off two days a week. And within six months, I was pretty much full time. 
And wow. I, I, I learned a lot in that setting. Like that one chance meeting had a lot to do mm-hmm. with it because I, um, I grew up on a farm in Connecticut, but a non-working farm, but we did a ton of hands-on stuff, you know, mm-hmm. little carpentry, little plumbing, little electrical, whatever. My dad and my brother are super passionate auto mechanics. Uh, my brother does it professionally. So they were always restoring vintage cars. You know, I know what tools do, stuff like that, but I have no professional training as a craftsperson. All my mm-hmm. professional experience is white collar stuff. So when somebody invited me to actually work in a trade setting, I was like, well, they're going to laugh me out of here in a week, but maybe I'll learn a few things. And six months later, I looked around and I was doing, you know, a, a significant portion of the work in that place. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I was off to the races and I worked at a few places. And then I ended up at a spot where the foreman and I just couldn't get along. Mm. Um, owner hired me without running me past the foreman forced. And I don't think the foreman was happy that I got hired without his input. And it just clearly wasn't working. So I quit. And at that point, I had already worked in all the furniture shops in the greater Cleveland area. There's only a handful. And there was nothing left to do but start the YouTube channel I had wanted to start for years, but had been putting off because I didn't feel confident. Well, mm-hmm. after I had the experience of working in a few shops, I thought, well, I'm not just going to be some guy in his basement. I know a few things. Let me start that YouTube channel I've wanted to start. Well, that's cool. That's cool. And and I, I get like the growing up on a farm and doing stuff. My my dad was an electrician and my mom watched kids and then she was a t- secretary at the school. But um, my extended family have what I like to call hobby ranches that kind of, or kind of like they were what was left of larger ranches and like my grandparents ran cattle and that kind of stuff. So on the weekends I, we, we'd go to the ranch and we'd, we'd do that kind of stuff. And it was whatever they had. And um, one of the ways I found your channel is my, my grandfather had passed away, but he was a child of the great depression. You know, he lived through that fought in world war two and kept everything, everything, he never got yeah. rid of anything. In fact, when we went through one of the barns, when we emptied it, it fell over. Because the stuff had been holding the barn up, yeah. Uh, so, like toward the end, it got danger. We realized what was happening, and we had to kind of like pull stuff out with the tractor. But we found jars of nails where a building had been torn down in town, and him and his buddy had gone in and removed all the nails from the building, and then straightened it and spent hours it because you know they might need those nails someday. Um, but but in that. Uh, I got, I inherited some like hand planes and some old stuff like that, you know, and I, I was like, it was COVID. It was, you know, we were trapped inside and I needed something to do. And uh, I was going through a bunch of stressful stuff, but besides COVID, um, and it was, I, it was I, I just, a rough time for a lot it, of folks. Exactly. Um, and I just typed in like restoring hand plane and, you know, I found and that's how I stumbled across your channel originally. And I was like, oh, this is, and I, I watched a bunch because, well, we're in the tech field and we watch a lot of YouTube videos because we have time <laughs> and we're in front of the computer all day. Yeah. Uh, but there was definitely a quality in your videos of I can learn something from this person. And in your early ones, you didn't really talk about like you had been a professor before or a lecturer before. Uh, but it, it definitely comes across in your videos that oh, they're, they're, they're very well produced. They're very nicely shot. And – I can follow what you're doing, which is huge for me. And it, it doesn't really surprise me that I like the Wood by Right channel and your channel because you both have teaching experience and that very much comes across. And Daniel and I both do that 
professionally. Like we teach people how to do tech support and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it's over the computer. And there's a certain presence you have to have. And I, I really appreciate that out of the way you're, you do your channel and you break everything up. Um, and, and how you pace them out. Um, you know, I, I've shown your channel to other people who aren't interested in woodworking, but they're like, I could follow this, you know. Um, <clears throat> so how did you That's develop? Going for. I was going to ask, how did you develop that style or what what thoughts did you put into it as you went from the like the early, like general, this is my shop, this is what you carry to work type of videos to mm -hmm. uh, the more project focused ones now? Um, so I think one important thing I should back up with is that I think that. If, if I'm a good instructor, a uh, big part of that is that I'm learning disabled. Okay. And that has a lot to do with it. So my early life in school was a disaster. Um, it's, this is crazy, but almost all the creators I know are dyslexic. Uh, and mm -hmm. I'm dyslexic, and James is, and our friend Anne is, and I've been on a stage panel before, and nobody knew, but everybody raised their hand when somebody asked the question, mm -hmm. like five people, all dyslexic. Um, and it's not that common in the population. So there's something about uh, people with learning disabilities ending up in content creation. I think if I'm good at uh, presenting information, it's not even so much because I was a teacher. I think I was a teacher because school was such a catastrophe for mm. me up until about high school, honestly. I didn't learn to read until late. I repeated the first grade. Um, and it was just, it was a terrible experience. So... I have a very clear sense of what it means not to understand something. And I, I, I understand what it means to start from zero. Mm -hmm. So most people don't remember learning a lot of things that they know. Like most people don't remember learning how to read. I remember learning how to read really clearly because it happened later than it does for most people and mm -hmm. over an excruciating period of time. It took years. Mm -hmm. So I remember that. So I don't take it for granted that people know certain things. I remember what it's like to really start from nothing. And so I try to start from scratch as much as possible. And I think that has the most to do with my style. I don't have a conscious structure to my videos. Okay. It's, so um, you don't you don't plot them ahead of time. Well, I write them ahead or? of time. Okay. But I just sit down and write them. Oh, okay. You know, so I just uh, I I I shoot all the video ahead of time, and I don't know what the story is going to be, or if there's okay. going to be a theme running through it. I look at all the footage, and I go for a walk, and then I sit down and I write it out. Um, okay. So every, most of what I say in my videos is is coming off of a script. I can mm -hmm. talk off the cuff, but sometimes I ramble. And so scripting really helps keep things focused. Mm -hmm. So you like to shoot the project, look at it, then take a few minutes, think about it, figure out what you want to do, and then, and then you put it back together again. So now I, I have a question to, to tag on that. We talk a lot about perception on here. Um, do you visualize inside your head? Do you have a, a mind's eye? Do you... So so as you're walking, you're like piecing it together in your head and go, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, very much. Um, and I, one of the things I think is important about my channel is that the videos are edited to the audio track of me talking. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the opposite of what most people do. 
right. most people edit the video together in a way that looks visually pleasing and then kind of improvisationally talk over it. Mm -hmm. I script out everything and I give my editor a script with specific directions written in for like where the transitions are and things like that. And my editor is a genius who loves film as much as I do. So I can say, make it look like Goodfellas here. And he knows exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. You know, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, we're doing a big Lebowski reference. No problem. <laughs> he's, he's on top of it. Um, and so it, I think if my videos are tight or organized and some of them are not, but when they are, it's because we get all the words together and the images have to serve mm -hmm. the words, not vice versa. And that's just because I'm a writer. Most of my colleagues have an art background and I don't. Mm. So mm. not having an art or design background, I lean on the thing I do know how to do, which is words. Yeah. Okay. Um, and one of the big reasons we, uh, we asked the visualization question is Daniel and I argue about this a lot because uh, he discovered something called aphantasia, which is not visualizing at all. And, mm. and Daniel's aphantasic. And like, I can close my eyes and watch a movie in my head, or I can read a book and see, you know, watch the cartoon pop up in my head. Mm. Um, so we stumbled across that. So we're trying to find, as we run into people, that, that, that's a big part of where the perception comes in is like, because for me, uh, you know, I can't visualize like a project. I have to have something to work from. Now I can still, once I've seen the, the image, I can close my eyes and kind of do it, but I can't draw it out. Um, where was I going with that? Uh, so when you're hunting for projects, do you try and find them? Do you research them? Or do you like sit down and try and come out with like a new piece of furniture from scratch uh, and, and oh. draw it that way? Um, so I have I have an unpopular opinion on this. I generally think designing new pieces of furniture from scratch is a bad idea. Okay. Um, not that, not that other people shouldn't do it, but that a lot of people shouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> okay. So there are people uh, like Chris, the guy who runs Four Eyes Furniture, who does uh, a lot of uh, mid-century modern stuff. That guy is a stone cold designer. He's great. He knows exactly what he's doing and his pieces are beautiful. And I really like his work a lot, but he's a, at this point, he's a professional designer. So he really, really knows what he's doing. Most furniture styles developed over centuries because of what worked. Mm -hmm. They're pragmatic. And when you have a piece of furniture, an individual piece or a tradition, that's been around for 200 years, you can build that piece with a clear conscience. That piece is mm -hmm. going to work. And it's going to look good too. So there's sort of two directions where I don't really like, um, it's going to sound weird to say, I don't like too much creativity in my furniture, which is weird because creativity is like my favorite thing. But I think you get on the one hand, you get people who don't have a sense of design or any of experience with design making things that are either flimsy or hideous. And then on the other hand, you can get people coming at it kind of from an art perspective. And that's how you end up with somebody building an end table that looks like a spider. And I think that stuff's horrible too. So, <clears throat> and where, when it comes to this stuff, I'm conservative. I build mostly uh, traditional reproduction type furniture and I, I build it for the reasons that I said. If something's been around for 200 years, it works. And when you look at, uh, so I mostly study vernacular furniture, so furniture that was built by non-professionals, farmers and wheelwrights mm -hmm. and people like that. 
there's a huge variation within any piece. Like if you look at 12 linen chests made a hundred years ago by people in Pennsylvania, they're all going to look vaguely similar, but there's so much individual flourish. Mm -hmm one so and i imagine this is similar for the field that you guys are in you've got a basic framework that makes the thing function and then within that framework once you understand it you see all the places where you can be expressive and you can put your own touches on things and you can change the proportions and the size and whatever so in a lot of ways i think you know discipline equals freedom working in a tradition and knowing that I'm doing things that are absolutely rock solid time tested and knowing where the opportunities for expression are, I, I never have a piece really go bad on me. You know, nobody's mm -hmm. going to look at one of my pieces ever and say, oh, that's a Rex Kruger. He has a very clear style. <laughs> I, I don't. I'm not a furniture designer. I'm a woodworking teacher. And you know what's funny about that is? That may be true, however, that doesn't apply with your workbenches because you're, they're very popular. And I've, especially the first one I built was the, the $30 workbench, which is now like a $200 workbench with the wood prices. But, you know, it, it right. I built uh, a cheaper one since then. I keep making oh, no, them cheaper. No, you do. You do. And, and I appreciate that. But I can only put so many workbenches in my garage. Um, you need a bigger garage. I know. I do. I do. Don't I, I've got all. the joint. I just finished the joiner's bench. It took three oh, years, but I just finished it. Uh, it was done, but I had to put the leg vise on. And we just went through a brutal summer where it was over 105 degrees for like four and a half months. So it was nothing outside. You weren't going out there. Um, yeah, I get it. No. Yeah. Um, but I have shown that to several people. They're like, you watch Rex Kruger's for the low Roman workbench that, you know, that $30 workbench. It's a very neat style. And um, and super practical for what it is. I mean, I was amazed with what I was able to do with it, um, especially since I've I found a bunch of the Chinese style hand planes um, oh, yeah. during COVID. There was like eight of them for a hundred dollars from AliExpress or whatever. Yeah. Exactly, I and have, I've been playing with those, and they work great I on have that thing. Seven of them across the shop. <laughs> um, They're leaning against the wall. Hey, listen, though, real quick, anytime somebody mentions the Roman workbenches, all the credit to that to Chris Schwartz, mm -hmm. who owns Lost Art Press. He wrote the book Ingenious Mechanics, which was yes. all about those. All I did was take Chris's designs and adapt them to construction lumber. So he gets all the credit for researching and understanding what those were. Yeah. And my thing was just making them a little cheaper and easier to build. But and, um, he still gets all the credit as far as I'm and, concerned. And, and he's amazing. I love his videos. I've got a bunch of his. Lost Art Press books, um, the one I was going to ask you about later, um, I'll go ahead and ask now. But I love that you come at it from a, I don't have a lot of money, potentially, and how can we do this as inexpensively but not cheaply as possible, yeah. right? Because You just summed it up beautifully. That was really great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and and it's, it, that is huge. I mean, that, that is one of the things that really drew, drew me to your channel because you make a distinction between inexpensive and cheap. Which is huge because there's a lot of cheap stuff out there that's not worth the money. It's not worth it, anything. Um, uh, it's like the people who talked about the old anvils, cast iron anvils you could get from uh, Harbor Freight. They called them anvil-shaped objects, right? Because you're just throwing money away because 10 hits in and it it breaks. But um, have you had a chance to look at uh, – here we go, this one. Oh, the, yeah. The, not only Not only that – I just had dinner with Joel Moskovitz, who's the guy who actually discovered that book. Oh, wow. The Joiner and Cabinet Maker. So Joel Moskovitz owns Tools for Working Wood, 
an amazing tool retailer out of Brooklyn. And we met up at Handworks and I had Indian food with him and his staff. Wow. And that book came up as a conversation. And Joel might be the most interesting person I've met in woodworking. And that's really saying something. <laughs> uh, the fact that he's running a successful woodworking tool operation in Brooklyn, New York, mm -hmm. um, of all places, makes him fascinating. Gosh. And he is a collector of old books. So uh, one of the most famous books in my industry is Joseph Moxon's Mechanics Exercises, mm -hmm. which came out in 1677, I think is the time. And Joel owns a first edition. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's how hardcore Joel Moxon is. I was going to say, all, uh, all my really old stuff is reprints from Lost Art Press, which if anyone here who's watching hasn't checked out Lost Art Press, their books are amazing. Just if you like books, the way they're put together, the, it, it's, it's like books used to be made, and it's, yeah. it's amazing. Um, there ain't no compromises press. Yes, and they're, they're worth every penny. Um, now, you mentioned you, you, you talked to someone in your staff. Now, I know when you started out, you were on your own, right? Yeah. It was just you yeah. and a camera. So how has on, – on the YouTube side of things, how has that developed? And, and where have you taken like the creative model? So for me, it's pretty simple. I have a history of tendonitis in my hands. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't have any problems right at the moment. But the thing that's really rough for me is the computer. Um, there's something about those little hand movements and mousing that mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. lights up my hands and wrists. I can do woodwork all day and I'm fine. I can play the guitar, no sweat. After two, three hours on the computer, I start to get sore. And if I do it for a whole day, I've got problems. Mm -hmm. So as time went on, I just started outsourcing more and more of the computer work to other people uh, because I suck at it anyway. I'm not a good editor. I'm not a good CAD designer. I'm not a good web designer. So I hired folks to do that stuff for me. You know, my job is to build things and write things and be on camera. Those are the only three things that nobody else can do. Everything else that goes into this business, and there's a lot of other stuff, all the rest of that stuff can be done by somebody else. So I was in a position of hiring people, not really when I wanted to or when I could necessarily afford it, but because it was the only way to keep things going. You know, mm -hmm. my hands just got to be like, as I said, right now, I'm, everything's fine. My hands feel totally fine. A lot of that's because I've hired people, but I've had different points over the past six or seven years where I've been in a lot of pain. And it's just been super obvious to me, like, I can't keep drawing the plans. You know, a set of plans would take me about 30 to 40 hours to draw. And after 30, 40 hours on the computer, I'm a disaster. <laughs> and the guy who does them for me now is a genius. He's 10 times faster than me. 10 times better. The plans have never looked so good. It's a bargain. So that's how having a staff has come up. And I, I listened to James's episode with you guys and it was great, but he said I have multiple full-time employees, which is not correct. <laughs> okay. I was Zero curious. That's, that's... Please. No, <laughs> we don't make that kind of money. <laughs> <laughs> I have three part-time employees. Okay. And I don't altogether, I don't think they even work 40 hours. So okay. for everybody who works with me, it's like a side thing or they have multiple part-time jobs, you know, or they're freelancers or, you know, whatever. My cat mm -hmm. guy has a full-time job and he just does this with me on the side. So I just have part-time employees. So I have a staff and, you know, we have staff meetings and all that stuff. I run it as much like a real company as I can. Mm -hmm. uh, 
because it takes a lot of the burden off me. And, you know, you hire people sort of because you have to. And then as soon as you do, you think, how was I ever surviving without this person? I've been with my editor now. He's been with me for over four years. I've literally lost all ability to edit. I don't even have editing software on my computer. Like if he quit, I wouldn't make videos again until I hired another editor. I'm, there's no mm-hmm. way I'm going back to that. Mm-hmm. And I look at him sometimes. He's you know, become a, a great friend of mine and I respect him tremendously. And I think, how did I ever get along without this person? Why did I resist hiring an editor? Everything is better mm-hmm. since I hired mm-hmm. an editor. And I feel the same way about my CAD designer and the same way about my web designer. I suck at all of that stuff. So hiring people has just improved the quality. And you can go back and watch some early videos. They're painful. They are technically <laughs> painful. Well, I can definitely say that the production value, you can tell it's increased as, as you've moved along, uh, especially the, the first couple of them um, where it looked like you were – were you in the same basement spot or was it a oh, different, different one? basement. Okay. My wife and I rented a house when we first moved to town. Ah. And I did my first, I don't know, 10, 15 videos from there. And then we moved. And I was in that basement for four years. And I'm talking to you now from a commercial building that I've mm-hmm. been in for two years. So what was it like to make the decision to move out of the basement into a commercial building? Because that's, to me, that's that's like a super all-in kind of move. Well, actually, the, que- the question is, was that the big step, moving into the commercial space? Or was there something before that? No, the big step was quitting my academic job and deciding I was going to go all in <laughs> yeah. on this completely bonkers career. It was okay. utterly irresponsible and made no sense. That was the big step. And had, you hadn't started at all at that point. You were there was no channel. No yeah. Okay. 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 And you know, I really wanted to. I was uh, enormously influenced by YouTube and the early big stars of the maker movement, like Jimmy Duresta and Izzy mm-hmm. Swan. And Howard and April Wilkerson, those people were like gods to me. And I was just too intimidated to get in the game. I just couldn't. Mm-hmm. And, and really what happened when I, when I had exhausted all the wood shops I could work in, my back was completely against the wall professionally. There were no more work, wood shops to work in. Mm-hmm. I had, because I had kind of progressed through them, like gotten better and been able to move to a better place and a better place. But, you know, the places I had worked before, I couldn't go back to, couldn't go back to teaching English. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't teach public school. I'm not certified. Mm-hmm. The only thing left to do, I, I said to one of my friends, I, I now have no excuse but to chase my dreams. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Mine was a little different because I, I worked for the tech company I work for now right when I finished college because I was the generation that was told if you get any degree, you're going to be guaranteed a job, right? Oh, for sure. It, I think we're the it, same generation. We look about yeah, the same age. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a Star Wars baby. I was born in 78. So I was um, born in 79. Okay, so right, right about there. Um, and then I went to grad school to, to be a pastor, and I, I did that. And then a life situation happened where my ex-wife needed significant surgery. And they were like, well, but you're not going to be at this church anymore. You're going to be moving to another one, but it'll be six months. I was like, I can't go six months without money and insurance and they're like tough so i went i moved from indiana just outside of chicago all the way back to texas because i knew i could probably get back on and and do that so it was like hard right turn and you know life life kind of thing happened so i know kind of what it's like to be like well 
go here. At least I had that tech support background, which has nothing to do with my, I got, a, I got a very useful degree. I got a comparative religions degree and I have got a master's in divinity from Gettysburg oh, Seminary. Oh, come on. I have a doctorate in media studies in film and media, right? Nothing's quite as dumb as my degree. <laughs> hey, let's, but you're using your degree though. You are, you are. Like I, I was, I was, I was going to say art history is about the only one that's worse that I know that was worse. Uh, it's pretty bad. Yeah. I knew a lot of art history people from Texas State University. Um but and most of them worked at coffee shops. Um but you uh, know let me answer was... Dan's question real quick. Um mm. moving into this space was a mental health necessity. Mm. Uh I had worked from home for too long, having work always be right there in the basement. There was there were a number of times where my wife or daughter caught me woodworking in my pajamas. Because I would start to think about something and it would bother me so much that I would go down in the basement to look at it. And then I would pick up a tool and start fiddling with it. And then before I knew it, I was hardcore woodworking in my bathrobe and slippers. And that happened. <laughs> like somebody would come down the stairs. My daughter would be like, Papa, what are you doing? And I would kind of wake up and look around and realize, okay, this has gotten completely out of hand. Mm -hmm. I need to get out of here. And I said before, Cleveland is really inexpensive. I have a 2,000 square foot building and it's $800 a month. Wow. That's crazy. Um, Heat included. Wow. Um, Austin used to be affordable. It's not anymore. Uh, that's one of the things we're running into, um, which is why I live way outside of Austin. Actually, Daniel does too. And we, well, I commute in. Daniel, you've worked from home for how long now? How many years Five. has it been? Five and a half years now. I need to get out of yeah. the house too. I, I hear you. Yeah, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it just a, it was for a couple of years. It was really nice and it was great. And and during mm -hmm. COVID, it was great because my mm -hmm. wife was on the top floor working at her job. My daughter was in the kitchen doing school, and I was in the basement making videos. And it was fine. Mm -hmm. That was at the tail end of my roughly five years of working from home, and it was just sucking all the joy out of everything. And then after a long search, I found this building, which you're really going to hate me, is half a mile from my house. <laughs> so on top of being cheap, I also walk to work half the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just an unbeatable situation. That's, that's amazing. I now, mean, can, you, I... can you walk there in your bathrobe, though? That's the question. I mean, I don't know if you guys have been to Cleveland, but Cleveland is no. wild. People do crazier <laughs> stuff than that. So, yeah, I probably could. And it, I don't know, it didn't seem that big of a thing. My folks owned a business growing up. They had mm. a lighting distributorship. So they sold lighting to schools and businesses. And so they always had a place that they uh, owned. And it was normal to me. And since this is a rental, I don't own it. Mm -hmm. I always felt like, well, my basement's not going anywhere. If this ends up being a disaster, it's a one year lease. I'll move yeah. back. It's not that big a deal. And now yeah. that I'm gone, I really can't imagine going back. It's much well, better to be here. Especially at that price with the utilities at that budget. You know, I mean, because, you know, I, I was talking about I need a bigger garage, right? I, I have several hobbies that take up space. And sure. that is the, you know, that is the trap I have, which is one of the things I, you've mentioned before in some of your earlier videos about like, I think you mentioned the average woodworking shop is the size of half of a two-car garage, something, or, 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 yeah. something like that. It, it was, it was. I think it was you, but it may have been one of the other ones I was watching. But 
that's what it feels like is like what can I fit in here and still keep the garage useful if I have to pull my truck in? Um, and that's a struggle, especially now I have to have a home office because we're hybrid after COVID. So, right. Um, and you know, typical type house, it's, it's hard to build that stuff up and then have storage and be able to get everything out. And that's what I end up having to do. It's like shove everything to the side of the garage and then pull it out. And so nothing's ever organized the way I want it to. For sure. Um, <clears throat> so I'm trying to think. Uh, oh, I, I remember what I wanted to ask. What was it like to – because I know you, you wrote a book that's published through uh, – like digitally about yeah, wood turning. Sure. My first book is an ebook. <clears throat> yeah, it's called One Week to Wood Turning. Yes. Uh, and then you, you've written the uh, Everyday Woodworking, which is a great – book I, I got one i got one when they, they came out and i got one for my oldest son who's also interested in this stuff uh what was it like to do go and write a book and and what was that process like um it was very difficult because i wrote it during covid so i completely blew my first deadline um mm. but it was in the middle of covid and i just emailed my editor and i said listen we're in the middle of a pandemic i'm not going to make this and he said no problem here's six more months so that was an easy <laughs> Um, the writing part is easy. What's really tough about how-to books like mine is they have a ton of photographs and a mm -hmm. lot of cabinets. And that stuff's it's just incredibly time-consuming to take the photos, pick the right ones, do the photo editing. And then the way you have to deliver your manuscript to the publisher has a very, very specific format. Mm. And so sitting there at the computer and doing all that formatting and stuff was really rough on my hands and arms. Mm. And um, it's just it's just incredibly time consuming. And, you know, books like mine just don't sell a lot of copies. There's just not a big audience for them. And, uh, you know, people always want to know about book publishing. And I, I love to talk about it. But I think the thing most people need to understand is that if you get a book contract, your contract is probably going to give you a 10% royalty on the cover, on the cover price, on the actual sale price. Mm. And my book was supposed to cost $19.99, <laughs> but Amazon's got it discounted down to $11. Oh, wow. So when you buy one of my books, I make a dollar and 10 cents. Wow. So, you know, doing a book like that with a publisher is a terrible financial move. It took me, I think it took me three years to recoup my advance. Mm. And so far, my net profit on the book is like $300. Wow. wow. I'm not kidding. It's, mm. it's peanuts. No, I, I, I believe you. I've, I, I read a ton of fiction as well as a ton of like non, nonfiction like this. And one of my favorite authors is, is Jim Butcher. And he has talked many, many times about uh, the books that he's written. And he's got, what? 20 books out now but i think he, he talks oh about God. how he was he was six or seven books into this best-selling series before he's like i broke even and i could quit my day job to start you know he's very upfront and frank about the fact that trying to be an author and make money at it takes years potentially of work before you can really make a living at it if you're lucky enough to to do it um so that's why those guys write so many books yeah yeah. I mean, I'm a big science fiction fantasy reader, and that's why mm -hmm. those people crank them out so hard, mm -hmm. because you can't make rent otherwise. 
Yeah, I, I think that's why the the romance novels are such a big thing, and they write so many of them, is because it's also the most commonly purchased genre. Um, well, and now is, they that, can bypass the yeah. publisher and go straight to digital through Amazon and. Mm -hmm. you know, bypass that whole process too. Well, so in my first book, which has sold a fraction of the copies, so Everyday Woodworking, which was with a big publisher, has sold, I don't know, 5,000 copies, something like that. Oh, wow. And okay. I would say um, One Week to Woodturning, which I self-published, has only sold about twelve to 1,500 copies. Mm -hmm. But I've made way more money off that. That makes sense. There's there's less bureaucracy, less stuff. Amazon at the time I signed up with Amazon, they gave me seventy percent, seven zero. Wow. And I think they changed it to a fifty fifty split, but that's still a really good deal. That's and I don't even think that's impressive. I don't even think that the traditional publishing model is necessarily unfair because I don't know what the economics under the hood are. Mm -hmm. I sell physical products too. I have a little tool company. So I, I know what goes into bringing out physical products and the uh, profit margins are typically very slim with that stuff. So I don't really have an opinion on whether that 10% is a fair or unfair price. It's just not enough money to spend 18 months writing a book. Mm -hmm. And so right. I, I write another, when I write another book, which I inevitably will, I'm just going to pay to have it printed myself. Yeah, so is that how you did the... Is that how you oh, did the cool. self-published one as well? You had them. That one's only a Kindle book. Oh, it's only digital. No. Okay. There was mm -hmm. no need for that. And what I did is I just got a couple of my former colleagues from academia to do the proofreading for me to make right. sure that it was good. And then Kindle books, you can edit in Microsoft Word and right. format it. Right. And they're very easy to put together. And that book doesn't have a ton of pictures. So I put that book together for $100. I paid my graphic designer 100 bucks to design the cover. And I did everything else myself. And my wife helped wow. out a little bit. And, you know, that book makes, I don't know, 100 bucks a month passive which is nice. great. It's way more money than I make off my big fancy book that I did mm -hmm. with a New York publisher. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so to do another book, I would do a physical book and I would just hire an editor mm -hmm. and a layout person to put it together. And I, I, I learned something fascinating recently. If you want to have a book printed, you call the printer and place an order. And that's it. That's all you have to do. Completely bypass the publishing. A thousand percent. Yeah. So what yeah. the publisher does, what the publishers basically do these days is they finance your book, they mm -hmm. front the money, and then the publishing industry has been completely hollowed out. So the people who are editors now, all they really do is manage freelancers. Mm -hmm. All the people who put together the books that you read are put together by freelancers. So you can just hire those people yourself. So you can hire the exact same people and pay them yourself, pay the publisher, I'm sorry, pay the printer. Now you need an audience and you need a way to distribute mm -hmm. books. But since I have a tool company, I have a distribution thing going on anyway. The book would just be another product. The big stumbling block is money. And back of the envelope, I would say bringing out a decent book probably costs about $15,000 which is a okay. big check to write. But mm -hmm. if you already have a content business and you have a reasonable yeah. expectation of making your money back, it's a realistic business expense. Especially if you're not doing it as your full-time gig, like you have other incomes coming in. And I think yep. that's, that's where the publishing companies still have 
their spot for those people that that's what they're doing. They're they're writing professionally, so they're fronting their living costs, you know, to to make money down the line. Um, because yeah. one of the things we talk about a lot is like what we're calling like new media, like new news, uh, direct news, the, the content creation, YouTube in general, and that whole concept of like. I can just now go on the internet and find people who can show me how to build things and take stuff apart. And, you know, all these things that I used to have to go take classes for or hire people with certifications that aren't necessarily that hard to do, but you couldn't get the knowledge unless you could read a a text manual and then understand what it was. And to me, that's what the beauty of like what you're doing and so many of the other people are doing. And I played with the YouTube thing a little bit early because I got sucked in. I don't remember if you ever, or I don't know if you ever watched survivor man, and uh, th- those kind of shows, the in the early 2000s, there was kind of the rise of what does it take to like survive in the wilderness by yourself? Oh, like Bear Grylls, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Bear, Bear Grylls. Uh, Les Stroud was the guy who started it as Survivor Man. Which, if you haven't watched his stuff, it's fascinating because he's a filmmaker yeah, and a survival guy, and it's all, all his stuff's on the YouTube his YouTube channel now. But I, you know, I got back into because I do computer stuff full time, and and Daniel kind of did this a little bit with me. We wanted to get away from the computer. So it was outdoors and camping, but not just that is how primitive can we make it? You know, yeah. Uh, yeah, how little can we do? So what I do is bushcraft, which is, you know, take as little with you as possible and multi-use as possible and go out and do that. So I, that was what my channel was. But they they all blew up at the same time and a, a couple of them got really big and, and, they, and, and I had a full-time day job and, and kids and stuff. So it was just a hobby for me. Um, but still, it's amazing how much you can learn just doing that. I want I, there's a subject I'm interested in: woodworking, becoming an electrician, being a plumber, camping, computer science, and now it's all here, and we have this basically for free type of media. Um, it just blows my mind because you know I grew up with the Encyclopedia Britannica, and that was that was it, right? That was our, our resource. I grew up in that same era. Yeah. And you know, um, I'm uh, what, what a lot of people would call like a second generation YouTuber. So, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't right there in the first wave and I learned a pretty good chunk of what I know from watching some of those first wave people. Like Paul Sellers was a big mm-hmm. influence on me. And you can see me use a lot of Paul's techniques in my videos. I have to cough. Hold on. <clears throat> um, I use a lot of Paul's techniques in my videos. <clears throat> like a lot of people like me who are in kind of the second wave, I wouldn't be here without YouTube. Part of what mm-hmm. I'm showing on YouTube, I got from YouTube. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the people who were kind of first wave, they sort of knew everything they needed to know and brought it to YouTube. I learned a third of what I know from YouTube. And a lot of, a big thing that my videos are is I, take some ideas that I've learned from other places and repackage them in a way mm-hmm. that a different audience is interested in. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's really helpful. Something that, that, that we talk about is, you know, and, and on, on the side of training at work is like, if I try to teach it to you and it doesn't click, let somebody else try. Cause they're going to mm-hmm. say it differently than I did. And maybe that'll click for you. And so you repackage it your way. And then like a whole different group of people are like, Oh, this i understand now so that's always I've shown, good i've shown techniques before and i'm stunned that people aren't familiar with them and i've mm-hmm. said to people things like oh come on paul sellers made a video about this 10 years ago and some folks have said to me oh i can't watch that guy his videos go on forever 
Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. because he kind of shows things in real time, which I really like. But just my disposition is to make shorter videos. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I realized early on is there was like a market niche for people who were interested in woodworking but had shorter attention spans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, you know, even if some of the even if some of the information I got from even another YouTuber, I'm putting it together in a way to make it accessible to other right. people. And as I've progressed in YouTube, most of the information I have now comes from books, especially rare out of print books. So I've taken my research background and I have an absurd collection of woodworking books. I've got three or 400 and Mm -hmm. most of them are out of print, you know, old stuff I found on eBay and I find things in those and I get ideas from those and bring them into YouTube. So it doesn't become an echo chamber, right? You know, people constantly reading the same things. I'm always trying to bring in new old information. Right. Right. One of the things I really appreciated is how you would build like a series, like I can go and you have definitive like playlists on your channel, like the joiners bench or the, uh, the English style joiners bench build and those kind of things. And it would be in those edible chunks. Like you're talking about, uh, because for me, it's not so much the attention span. I can watch a 50 minute video, but if I'm out building it, I, I go out and do something in a chunk and then I come back and I go out and do something in a chunk and come back. And that is especially because like, I will often put like an iPad up wherever I'm working and, and have the videos ready to play as a reference because the plans kind of work for me. I'm not ready to build just off of plans. It still helps for me to be able to look and see somebody do something. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of at that state in my rough woodworking career. Um, and that's very helpful. And the other thing you do is you make plans that you sell, which is really cool. And, and some other people do it, but a lot of them don't that I've noticed. Yep. And it's really nice to have a couple of different references. Um, so the way you set that up was really neat. And then you offer your patron service, which I was really lucky. I got on at the, t- the $2 level oh, and, yeah. uh, yeah, so I still have that one. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, and, um, a couple of things have come out of that one. I get the plans when they come out early, I get the videos early, which is really kind of cool for free. I get the plans for free, um, which has been worth every penny of it because, you know, I went and, you know, added it up and I'm like, well, it's, I'm, I'm saving money here on this. Uh, but the other thing you developed which is very rare on the internet is a very good forum community. And it is one of the nicest, healthiest, most uplifting places I've ever been on the internet. And those are, those are like unicorns. So how, how did you put that together? Was that your idea? Did somebody else come up with the forum idea or. So, you know, the, uh, the forum is like, the best thing that I'm associated with that I can't take literally any credit for. <laughs> and, and I'm not short of ego. I would take credit for it if I could. Literally, Patreon sent me an email saying, hey, would you like to have a forum for your patrons? We have a free discourse integration. It would usually cost you X number of dollars a month, but you can do it for free. And I was like, great. And I went upstairs to where my editor was working, and I said, Nate, I just forwarded you this email from Patreon. Go set this thing up. And he said, okay, boss. And he went and set it up. And then I went on and made like 10 posts to get it rolling. And I've had almost nothing to do with it since then. That's amazing. (laughs) Well, I'm on there so little. The forum members did a health and wellness check on me. They literally... (laughs) picked somebody to email me to make sure I was okay. 
because I'm never on my own forum. That's funny. Uh, well, whoever you have moderating it is doing an amazing job. Um, so yeah. to your mods, thank you very much because you know not only are they like helpful with the stuff. There's the, this whole not woodworking section where mm-hmm. you know they they I've got a long series of posts where they help me through like the backlash of a nasty divorce and just all kinds of stuff that you wouldn't expect. And, and most places on the internet, I would have never felt comfortable talking about that kind of stuff, but sure. it is such a, like, I don't think I've ever seen anyone give a negative critical evaluation of somebody. It's always, Hey, this might work better. Good job. Great attempt. You know, and so however that has developed, it's, it's one of my favorite places to go on the internet. Um, and I haven't found somebody else who's offering something similar. So that's that's a really neat service. Well, so I, I'm, I'm really glad for that. And I think it, it's possible I may be led by example a little bit there. From teaching, I know that you know negativity doesn't help. Uh-huh. The second you make someone feel bad for not understanding something, you can't teach that person. They're not mm-hmm. going to listen to you. So the criticism has to be very sparing. And you really have to focus on the positivity. And like Dan said a minute ago, okay, this didn't work. I'm going to try it this way. I'm Mm -hmm. going to try it this way. Then I'm going to send you to this other person I know who's really good at this. And then you can learn that and come back to me. And it's always about finding a different way of doing things. And I think as far as the forums go, um, I was really influenced by just a couple forums that I belong to. I don't even really post on them, but I'm a musician and I play the guitar. And the Telecaster discussion forum on the internet is a thoroughly amazing place. It's really great. And people are very polite. There's a few things I stole from them, like they had a no profanity rule, Mm -hmm. which I found was just really straightforward. I loved it. I am shockingly foul-mouthed in my personal (laughs) life, but I make family-friendly content. And I noticed that when people weren't allowed to swear, they got in fewer fights. It was really straightforward. Things escalate a lot as soon as you drop the first F-bomb. Mm-hmm. can't do that. People don't fight as much. And then I also play steel guitar, and I'm a member of the Steel Guitar Forum, and that place insists that you use your real legal name. No exceptions. Wow. That's... Yeah, because we, we both work in computer customer service, and um, it has been fascinating to see from speaking on the phone versus face-to-face versus over just chat versus like text and post. It seems the more removed you get from who you are, like mm-hmm. not having a legal name, right? Like mm-hmm. the forum requires the more people feel, I don't Daniel, what is it? In the farther had, you get away from your humanity, the less human you act. Because, I mean, yeah, yeah that that's the yeah. way to put it. <laughs> um, um, I am uh, aghast at the lack of manners and civility in modern life. Uh, mm-hmm. I was raised by very strict parents who were um, unyielding in their demand that I be polite all the time. My father uh, absolutely hammered into my brother and I, you two are young gentlemen and you will behave like gentlemen. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't mm-hmm. something we were going to talk about. It was the way things were. Mm-hmm. and. Um, I just, I, so many of the things happen on the internet, and I, I'm not a conflict-averse person. If somebody wants a fight, I, I've got one, <laughs> but I don't start them. Mm-hmm. And things people say for 
no reason that I can understand. You know, and I, I don't even leave negative comments. If I don't like a YouTube video, I just go watch something else. Mm -hmm. I don't yeah. have anything to say about somebody's video. This video is not for me. Off we go to the next <laughs> video that I am like. So I think some uh, of it's generational. Uh, you know, we're well, all yeah. men of a certain age. Mm -hmm. And some of that, you know, I just didn't grow up with this stuff. The internet basically didn't exist until I was in college. Yeah. You know, it sort of existed Same. when I was in high school. I was a fully, some people actually call us the luckiest generation because mm -hmm. our brains formed before the internet, but we were young enough to become really fluent in the mm -hmm. internet. And so we yeah. were not distorted by social media in our youths. But we're not our parents' generation who are constantly a little bit confused by what's going on here. And yeah. I do feel very I, I And I also think we're lucky in a way that I'm – like my my oldest has just turned 18, and I have noticed that him and his peers are way less tech savvy than people of our generation. And I think Isn't it's it because – here. Well, I, I, have a, I have a hypothesis. It's because had to learn breaks. a new – well, nothing breaks, and we had to learn a new tech every four years or less. Yeah, that's true. You know, it was constantly changing. How many things have we seen come, go? It was the next big thing, and now it's gone, right? And and you know, just look at music, right? We went from vinyl to cassette or vinyl, eight track, cassette, CDs, and now we're back to vinyl. And my son's like, "Man, this stuff, vinyl stuff, so cool." I'm like, "It's because yeah, it's because it, it actually sounds, sounds better." better. Yeah, like it's actually a, a higher quality recording. <laughs> no, I, I think that and so I'm about four years younger than you guys. So I, I started to get the Internet like right at the beginning of high school for me. Mm. And so like I, I sort of had it in that like we were AOL messaging each other and email was a big thing. But like I, I've seen it in my kids the same way, like we were dealing with Windows 2000 and Windows ME and those things mm -hmm. were breaking twice a day two, three mm -hmm. times a day. And you're like, it's that thing. I got to reset this thing and then pull this file. And then now it'll run fine for three or four days. And I don't have to worry about it again. My kids come to me and go like, it stopped working. Did you, did you restart it? No, I didn't mm -hmm. think about that. Like they, they just have no, they don't need to know how to fix it. Cause it doesn't, it doesn't break three times a day anymore where the tech has gotten to the point that it's, it's good. And it doesn't mostly stable. So. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, I'm I'm orders of magnitude less tech savvy than either of you, but my family's first computer was a Commodore 64, mm -hmm. which was an awesome home computer, by the oh, way, yeah. and ran some truly badass video games that I have really yes. fond memories of playing. But, you know, you needed a certain amount of technical skill just to do yeah. anything. And then our, our second computer was a DOS computer that didn't even have a mouse. I mean... Mm -hmm. Uh, we didn't get a Windows computer until like Windows 95. There was no way to use a computer that wasn't fairly technical. And when right. I was early in my teaching career, it was very popular to call our students digital natives. And people would say, oh, your students are digital natives. They know things that would shock you about computers. And after a few years of teaching, I thought, no, no, it's the opposite. I'm shocked by what they don't know don't about know. computers. Yeah. I yeah. students who would lose a paper and I would say, well, well, is it on your hard drive or did you store it on some sort of a file system or whatever? And they would look at me blankly and they would just say, I don't know. And it's, like I said, not a very tech savvy person, but the idea of not knowing where your file is yeah. is to me. Like that's the most. Well, but we all grew yeah. up in the world of if you didn't hit save, it was gone forever. Awesome. 
And a lot of these programs now have auto saves and and store. And so, like, when they lose it, they go, oh, I don't know. Oh, you just, oh, there it is. It's saved. We're used to, like, oh, it's gone. Oh, it's gone. Like, there's, you know. (laughs) So I'll I'll give you a little story from from work. We don't talk about work a whole lot. But I had a new peer, (laughs) a relatively young new peer show up about six months ago. And they were so excited because they thought their grandparents had gotten a 3D printer. Oh, I was wow. like, why? What, what kind? They're like, I don't know. I was like, did you not see it? They're like, no. I was like, finally, I was like, how did you know they have a 3D printer? He goes, because they 3D printed a bunch of save icons. He'd found a box of floppy disks. And oh he had never, God, s- no, straight up, legit, no. he'd never seen one. He had only known it as the floppy, di- the save symbol. And that's when I went, I'm old. I'm old. I'm an old man. Well, see, you also have to question oh. what that child, what that guy's parents taught him. Yeah. Because oh. my kids are younger, th- but they know what a floppy disk is because I've shown it to them before. <laughs> like, look, see what this is? Our computer used five and a quarter floppy disks. Oh, yeah. I had one. Yeah, my first one did. Floppy disk was those five and a quarters. Those things that suck. were actually, yeah, actually floppy. Floppy. Yeah. That's where that came from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the what was it? Chuck Yeager's Air Combat, one of my favorite games ever, was on five and a half inch floppies, and yep. back in the day, all those uh, few things. Oh, yeah. A few things I remember better than C colon slash run slash yep. doom. You know, and then like <laughs> then you'd go play. You know. Oh yeah, um, we had the Commodore sixty fours at school, but we didn't buy we didn't buy a computer until we realized that like, I was dyslexic. I got diagnosed. But mine and later it was it was rediagnosed, so I'm dysgraphic, so I have a problem with output, not mm-hmm. with with the input. Mm-hmm. Um, but we got it because I was failing every class that had a misspelled word. And yeah. so and then I took a typing class when I was um, seventh grade on an actual typewriter, you know, an IBM electric typewriter. And what's fascinating is I can't write without misspelling words and it'll blank out, but I can type. And I usually don't spell. So my brain's hardwired slightly differently when I, so if I jump on a keyboard, I can spell stuff mostly, but yep. it's way better than if I do it. Um, do you know how often the computer, computer, the computer looks at me and says like, I don't even know what you're trying to spell. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I, I do get that sometimes too. And I have to really labor my way through the words, sort of sounding it out. Just so I've, I can get I've found to out computer to figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. I've found out that Google is better at figuring it out. So sometimes I'll yes. take it out of my word processor and drop it into Google and be like, "That's how you spell it," and then I can put it back in. Uh, strangely, just living in such a um, in yes. such a word saturated environment has actually improved my spelling mm-hmm. as an adult. Like it was still embarrassing as a teenager and in my twenties, but now in my forties, I would say I'm probably average at spelling and the idea that i'm even average means i have come a quantum leap in the last oh yeah yeah because i was so bad but i think it just goes to show that enough practice even it's something you have no talent for yeah eventually you'll gain proficiency i've i've got this thing where i because i think it's because of the way my my brain processes if i look at a word i can go well that's spelled wrong i Mm. i know it's wrong i can my my object recognition goes, well, that's not how that word is spelled. And then, well, what's the right way? Well, I can't tell you what the right way is, but I know it's not right. <laughs> yeah, it, we've been talking a lot about the 10,000 hours. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the 10,000 hours oh, concept. Very much. But, sure. but yeah, I think that's that's what you're talking about, about the spelling. Eventually, we get to a point where mm-hmm. we just put so many in and we use so many of the, the common, you know, it's like common strokes or common words or whatever 
um, that they, mm-hmm. they come in because I can remember a point, especially like in high school where my brain would blank on like the, I'd be like, I know it's got three letters in it, but I can't, I can't just output it. And mm-hmm. it was always a struggle for me because, you know, it, it, back then it was, it was the eighties and the early nineties teachers would be like, you're, you're stupid. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, sure. I'm smarter than you are. But because I was a smart ass. Uh, <laughs> but, well, and, and sometimes yeah. that was true. I mean, I can yeah. look back at some of the teachers and think, yeah, he wasn't too bright. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that was true sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I got called stupid quite a bit and uh, grew to resent it quite a bit. Yes. Yeah. There, there's definitely a chip that comes along with that uh, yeah. that you, you have to learn to work through. Uh, the other part of it is. You know, um, one of my kids, my oldest is special needs for uh, he's autistic, extremely high functioning autistic. But uh, and then my youngest is dyslexic. And I was able to recognize it really early because I knew what it was like. But I've really pushed for all the features that are available for public school kids, you know, all the extra services and stuff. And that's one of the things that I find myself talking to most other parents and stuff about. It's like push for these services, get them early. Well, it it it. works. Because yeah. my my son had to repeat kindergarten because he's dyslexic as well. I was just I'm dysgraphic. I I have the worst handwriting ever. You no yeah. one no one can read my handwriting. My kids have bad handwriting, and I wrote I something know, I, out for them. I, I I think I'll fight you on that one. Okay, mine, well, we can. Mine we might can be worse. A, I gave it to my son who has horrible handwriting, and he looked at it and went, "I can't read that." I was like, "Oh yeah, no, I can't either." Hang on, let me do that again. But <laughs> but he. He couldn't read from, you know, it, it took, but he's now in, in what, seventh grade now. And it's about like fourth or fifth grade where it was just like, all of a sudden he just was like, oh, I got it. I figured it out. Like it, it just, you just have, but if you, if you wait until they're in the fourth grade or the fifth grade or the sixth grade, they develop all these bad habits and mm-hmm. you gotta, you gotta get that stuff early and, and use those resources. So, yeah. yeah, I was very fortunate. My mom was a pioneer in that stuff. She had been an English teacher and a guidance counselor. And nice. so she was very knowledgeable about education and uh, she had left that work to work with my dad on the family business. But when the school told her that I was stupid, she just thought, no, he's not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> she was a very high achieving academic person. And my dad was a, 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 a totally fine student who got a degree in invertebrate zoology. So n- no great student, but no slouch. <laughs> And it yeah. just didn't make sense to her that both of her sons were floundering terribly in school, which my brother and I both were. And mm-hmm. she was confident that we were smart. And so she educated herself about that and figured out that the Americans with Disabilities Act was a thing. Mm-hmm. And she went into my public school and did bloody battle with my mm-hmm. teacher and my principal and fought tooth and nail. Because in the 80s, they weren't too interested. Oh, yeah. No, they didn't want to do it. And she, she genuinely forced them to. Uh, at threat of litigation. And I got a lot of services when I was young and it made an enormous difference. School was still a a struggle, but it's very easy for me to imagine an alternate reality where I didn't even graduate high school, mm-hmm. let yeah. alone go on to college and graduate school. You know, and it's, it's only because I got appropriate servicing at a young age that I was able to adapt to my disabilities to the point where they don't really matter anymore. I still right. know that I'm right. disabled, but it doesn't really have an impact on my life. Yeah. And I, yeah. so I, I grew up with, 
with ADHD. And so like yeah, I, I got put in a lot of those things as a kid. My parents were, you know, study groups and all these things that mm-hmm. like I hated going through through, you know, middle school and high school. And now I look back on it and I'm like, oh, all these things that I do and all these tricks and things that I to keep myself organized, I wouldn't know if I hadn't done that. And then I'm giving them to my kids like, oh, no, no, here's mm-hmm. how you have to here's the trick to to be able to you know, get your work done or whatever it is. And I'll tell you something that I noticed as a teacher. I noticed honestly that a lot of people go into teaching because they're just good at school and they like it a lot. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those people make lousy teachers. Mm-hmm. Because if you lack the experience of being bad at school, if you lack the empathy to understand what it's like from the student's perspective, you know, if you mm-hmm. were just a great student and you were the teacher's pet, chances are you're going to suck at teaching or you're going to be really good for the kids who are talented and can sit still and pay attention and you're going right. to utterly fail to help anybody else. So I never would have gone into teaching if I hadn't had these problems and I don't think I would have been any good at it because I'm a smart guy and if I just sort of did school effortlessly, I would have thought, well, you just do it this way. Why aren't you doing it this way? Mm-hmm. Right. It was it was the the difficulty that gave me the ability to teach people. Yeah, gave you a different perspective on it. Yeah. One one of the things I've noticed, and I want to I want to ask people at work now, um, because we work in a, a primarily a training role, is how many of them may have struggled with this? Because I've found it seems like the more people I know who are good orators, especially like I I, I did the pastor thing for a couple of years, and the people who were really good at the preaching aspect of the job were people who struggled with a lot of the same disability type things and i wonder if it's because we we had to express ourselves verbally very well um as opposed to you know the written word um or you know Mm. i know other people who are experts at the empathy thing and people like end of life or crisis stuff or people who are amazing managers or organizers getting people to volunteer Everybody had their own niche, but the people who were really good at like presenting information, because what one of the things I was always good at was adapting material and then re-delivering it. Sure. Um, because you know, the churches you have to buy a lot of off-the-shelf stuff that doesn't fit, and you know, how do you make it fit for your environment, your culture, your stuff? And that was something I was always really good at was breaking that down and putting it back out there. Um, but I'm wondering, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm t- I think I'm gonna start asking some of the people at work. It's like. Hey, is this something that that you've struggled with? Because if it is, mm-hmm. then that's an asset for us, right? Um, to to try and look for and leverage. Um, that's fascinating, and that's one of the reasons I love doing this and inviting people on. It makes our brains go in different ways, and we pick up different things. Well, there's a key distinction that I think most people don't realize, which is that uh, speech is a naturally evolved behavior. Writing is a technology. Mm-hmm. Human beings invented writing, Mm -hmm. and that's why your kids will start talking no matter what you do, but most of them won't start reading unless you sit them down and teach them to read, because our brains are hardwired to talk, but they're not hardwired to read. Mm -hmm. So people used to approach me and they would say, it doesn't make sense that you can't read. You're such a, you're such a good talker. You're so verbal. You have a big vocabulary. And I didn't know how to explain it either because it didn't make sense to me either. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm a little older, I understand it's because speech and writing have a very tenuous connection to one another. Mm-hmm. You can be the most brilliant orator in history and be illiterate. It's yeah, right. possible. And it's, it's, well, and I think that that has like what you said, it has <clears> to do with that it, 
speech is something that it, that evolved like it 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 sprung forth of its own accord in some time in the past when people needed to communicate and our brain is like the second the baby comes out and even before they're they're processing the sounds that they're hearing and starting to put those things together and so that's why i think that's the the second piece of that is that's why they say the way to help your kids learn to read is to sit down with them and read them you know force that connection because they're Mm -hmm. like you said the brain isn't designed to do it automatically but if i sit you down and do it with you i can i can force the brain into making those connections you know when my mom uh read to me until i was in oh probably the fifth grade Mm -hmm. and uh my daughter thank god doesn't seem to have any disabilities at all reads like nobody's business and she's 10 and we still read together every night still have a book we read as a family she can read whatever book we're reading by her damn self she doesn't yeah. need up for anything anymore and she still loves story time and all three of us get together Absolutely. and we read books and uh it's just a family ritual and it has nothing to do anymore with reading to her to help her read we just all like it and now she's yeah. old enough that we're reading books i actually like so <laughs> <laughs> well see when we were reading when i was reading with my kids they I picked the book. So we started with, you know, Harry Potter. You know, we started with yeah. good stuff. So it, there was no. My wife and I picked a lot of books because a lot of them were, these were books of our youth that we yeah. care mm-hmm. about. So we're going to yes. pass this on to you. Yeah it, yeah. it was fascinating with my oldest son with, with his autism because he was, he learned to read really early and he was really good at it, but he liked to read like sports books. And there's a series called Hatchet. I don't know if you've run oh across it. Oh, my God, yeah, you... yeah. Okay. Not only did we um, uh, read that with my daughter, she just had to read it for school. Okay. Uh, so she he, or he, he, did, he did that stuff, and then he hit sixth grade, and he brought home Tuck Everlasting. And I don't remember if you <laughs> – I read that one. That rings, a, that rings a bell, but I'm not sure. It's, it's, it's like a kid who meets an immortal frog, and there's fairies and stuff. And I had to read it in school, but it's it, – it's, very flowery language, very descriptive language. And he came home and he's like, I can't read this. I was like, what's going on? I know you can read, right? I mean, he's like, I don't understand what's going on. And I read the first chapter and it takes a whole chapter to say it's a hot, muggy Georgia summer. And I'm like, they're saying it's a hot, muggy Georgia summer. And he goes, why didn't they just say that? Yeah. Yeah. He couldn't take these descriptive words and put it together. He was, overly literal and so once we figured that out we were able to finally go and work with the teachers and be like look he can read it to you but his brain isn't isn't taking that he needs something more direct and then we went through the whole fight of well that's not that's not a real thing and it is and it wasn't but he didn't develop the ability to kind of read those kind of books until he was like 15 or 16 so it's it's been real interesting to watch and in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. He developed some stuff super fast, super early. Like in eighth grade, he could look at calculus and just tell you the answer. He couldn't write it out. He couldn't show his work. He'd just be like, it's 36. And you're like, how? And it's like, because it is. It's math. I don't know. You know? Yeah. Um, that was but how the I other was things school. Develop. Yeah. That I, I used to have so many fights with teachers, math teachers, with like show your work. And I was like, I can't. Why not? I'm like, I, and I, and I, I figured out now it's my aphantasia. Like uh-huh. my brain just solves the math problem, but I can't visualize what it was. It just happens. And so it, it took years of back and forth until I finally had to do like a, 
a math test in front of everybody and they mm. were like well clearly he's not cheating so go ahead like you don't have to show your work anymore but my battle was... they wanted me to do math at all <laughs> I, uh, I don't want to and i'm bad at it so yeah. that's that... my wife yes um, well, I know you're on East Coast time, not Central time like we are, and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, so, well, thank you very much for co for coming on. Um, we'd love to have you back on again at some point because I'm sure there's more we could talk about. Oh, I'm sure. Um, yeah, it's great. Um, but uh, you know, I you're you're an hour ahead of us. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't want to keep you up super late. Um, but yeah, thank thank you very much. This has been this has been really neat. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, I think you've got a great show going here. I think that people are able to do independent media like this is so important. And it's been, I think, the the most important force in my life, really, was the rise of YouTube and podcasting and self-publishing and, and people able to do these things on their own. Changed the course of my life. If it weren't for that, I would still be teaching English at a university in Central California. <laughs> Um, YouTube is the reason I was able to sort of take control of my own life and take it in a different direction. And it's, it's great to see other people doing that. Yeah. It's, awesome. it's definitely given us a voice for things that we're just fascinated by. So, yeah. um, awesome. Well, we will, we will get you the link and we will shoot that out to you. Um, if you, if you want to send it out there, yeah, um, sure. um, we'll, what we usually publish like on Thursday or Tuesdays or Wednesdays the, when we're yeah, publishing regularly. <laughs> It's, it's been a bad month. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, thank you very much. And um, I look forward to seeing what the next video that's going to come out is. So. Well, you will see it <laughs> on Saturday because you're a patron. So <laughs> you get it before other people do. All right, guys. Thank you so much. It was yeah, a thank pleasure. You. And I hope we get to talk again. Cool. Absolutely. Have a great thank day. you.